0: And as you're finding your way there to Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31, as we're going to be wrapping up chapter 4 this morning, we need to remember that this entire letter, the letter to Galatians, in its wholeness, we'd say, is a defense of the fundamental doctrine of the gospel. If what Paul represents here is not the gospel, then what's the point? And what's the point? This is that fundamental, core doctrine of what the gospel is. The, cl- the clear argument from God's word, particularly here in the book of Galatians, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation can never be earned. You can't receive it. You can't do enough good works in order to gain salvation for yourself. And this is a very important qualification from the book of Galatians, particularly what James what, what James, what Paul is speaking about, and what we need to recognize that I think is something we often struggle in ourselves. This includes adding to grace our works. It's very important. It's not salvation by grace through faith in Christ plus good works, which is particularly uniquely the struggle that we have to see happening in Galatia. And this is something we struggle with all the time. We will herald, we will profess salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but in our flesh, we want to add more. There must be more that we have to add. And as we recognize this, if we are formally doing this, if we are intentionally adding to grace, we're perverting the gospel. We are, in some sense, feeling, acting, believing that there's something more that I can add to what Christ has already accomplished. Think about just the severity of that alone. When we look at this, we've been reading time after time this passage, but let's read it again because we want this to stick in our brains before we're done with this book of Galatians. Galatians 2.16, this is what it says, read with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, before we actually take the next step and look at the portion of Scripture we're looking at from Galatians chapter 4, you ready? This is a deep theological word that you're going to need to write down and remember. This is a humdinger of a text this morning. Humdinger is the key word. Holy cow, am I grateful that we had snow days this week and the Lord blessed me with some extra time. Um, some of you maybe have read ahead and can appreciate what we're going to be in this morning. Some of you are like, wow, what are we doing? You'll see, it's coming fast. Um, but this has been a difficult week of study for me and yet I just thank the Lord for his Holy Spirit That it is God's design and intention that the Word of God is clear, that it's understandable. As we look at this, we don't look to this and say this is an obscure, weird passage of text of Scripture that we pass away or we brush into a corner. This is the Word of God. God has preserved, given, inspired this that we would have it today. And so therefore, we can be excited about the fact that that God's going to teach us something powerful through this text this morning. And I genuinely—I'm not just saying that to puff you up right now. The more time I spent in there, this in this text this week, the more I appreciated. There's something powerful here for us. So hang on. Write down the word humdinger, and here we go. Galatians chapter four, starting with verse 21. This is what the word of God says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We can confidently say this is the word of God. And so therefore, as we're looking at this, we recognize there are important things for us to see and understand from this text this morning. Now, we have to build and look at, as we're looking at this, there's a premise to Paul's argument here that's built in verse 21. And as we see that, I want you to identify this premise. It's in verse 21. This is the foundation of what he's going to start building here in these texts that we see this morning. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Okay, so in a sense, what we're saying here is he's speaking rhetorically, and he makes a statement and then a question out of that statement, a rhetorical question, we'd say. And the essence of Paul's question is something like this. You Galatians who have been saved by grace, do you really desire to put yourselves back under the law? In a sense, that's what he's coming to. He's saying, you want to be under the law? Let's talk about that. Do you really desire to do what you say you want to do? Why in the world would we want to put ourselves under the law? And now Paul uses yet another method of rhetoric, because that's what he's been doing through this letter of Galatians. he He is an attorney, trained as an attorney, and he's using that kind of rhetoric or rhetoric to build an argument that the Galatians will understand the folly of placing themselves back under the law. He he wants the Galatians to see this is foolishness. Why would you exchange grace for the law? Do you really want that? That's the foundation of the question. And so as he's building this rhetoric, this logical argument towards salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he introduces another method of argument, another method of teaching, we could say. And he does that through allegory. Okay, now this is what really makes this text difficult this morning. Uh, what we need to do as we t- before we take another step forward in the text, we need to understand what is an allegory? What does it mean to say that Paul is saying in verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically? By the way, this makes it really difficult, and I'll explain more in just a minute. Allegorically, this is a very unique word in the Bible. If you were to use a Strong's Concordance, or if you were to use just a digital digital version of a concordance on your phone or some other digital device, and you were to look at the original language and the word that's used here for allegorically, and you were to look to see how many other times this occurs in the rest of the Bible, you would immediately identify it appears nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only time in all of Scripture that this word is used, now to be fair, in the Greek, but even with that being stated, as we look at the Hebrew and the Aramaic, the other biblical languages, this kind of word is foreign. This is not a kind of word that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. So, when I was trying to understand and think about some simple ways to communicate this to you, I went to some other resources to understand and think about how we could be looking at it, and Unger's Bible Dictionary simply defines an allegory this way. Not that way, That's me in this clicker again. Here we go. Not that one. There you are. This is Unger's Bible Dictionary, just an excerpt of of a definition. Allegory expresses or explains one thing under the image or likeness of another. Okay? You might want to write that down. Maybe you're just processing that. I'll explain it a little bit further in just a minute. But allegory expresses or explains one thing under the image or the likeness of another. Now, here's a quote from, just honestly, this is something from a Google search. I can't even tell you which website this was, but this is from the Google machine. Allegory is a long-held literary device that distills complex ideas into a simple, accessible story. Okay, so this again may not be completely clear if you're not familiar with these kinds of terms and this kind of wording, but just it should be becoming more clear. Our English word allegory is actually not a translation, but it's a transliteration from the original Greek. The very word that's used here in the New Testament in this one occasion in Scripture. Uh, I'm not. I'm going to butcher the original language, but instead of allegory, it's allegorio. It has an O on the end, but phonetically it's almost identical. It's just a transliteration from the Greek to the English. Here's an important principle of Bible study. As we're building this idea of allegory, this is an important qualification for us to understand. When we study Scripture, we want to take a real, literal, historical approach to Scripture. That's the method we want to use you ready? Unless, unless the text itself tells us to do otherwise. This text is telling us to do otherwise, which is going to be a huge curveball and why it was so difficult for me this week. This is another important thing for us to recognize. There are so many, just innumerable heresies, false teachings, misinterpretations of Scripture that come primarily, honestly, from liberal scholars who want to look at Scripture rather than literally and historically. They want to look at it symbolically. It's a different word that means similar but not the same. But They want to look at it metaphorically. They want to look at it allegorically. They don't want to look at Scripture from a literal historical perspective. And so we have to be careful that in this unique, particular case, we have the green light. Look at this allegorically. There's the qualification, do it correctly. But we also want to be careful that we don't take this principle and look to some other passages and say, oh, I feel that allegorically, this is this imagery, and here's another image here, and this is a portrait of this, when Scripture hasn't given us a green light to do that. I want to just give a quick citation, though I'm not going to define these terms. Similarly, we see Jesus teach in parables. It's not an allegory, but there's a similarity there. We do see occasions when we will see metaphors. Let me give you an example of a metaphor. Paul talks about the church, the household of God. That's a metaphor. When he talks about the church, he talks about it as the body of Christ. That's a metaphor. Allegory has a lot of correlation to those word usage, or to those communication usages, but it's different. And it's uniquely different. Now, we have to recognize that when we look at Scripture, not literally, it's a dangerous game, and we have to be very, very careful when we do this. Which, again, has been my guard this week. Brian, are you doing this right? Are you looking at this correctly? It's a a scary game. So with that qualification, this is allegorical language. The text we see today... I repeat, is the only text in the entire Bible that gives us the green light to look at it allegorically. Verse 24. And I repeat again, allegory is a literary device that is intended to illustrate or make a reality clear through imagery. Let me give you an example of, uh, not secular, what was the right word, Just, just, just writing that would be allegorical that you would relate to, that you would identify. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That's an allegory. When you look at the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, written by C.S. Lewis, this is allegory. These are pictures that are used to portray a much deeper, a much more powerful imagery. So in other words, when you're looking at the Chronicles of Narnia and you see the lion, who is the lion? Getting the picture? We're going to start doing that in this text this morning. Now, one other very important, I'm overstating these important qualifications, but they're really important. In fact, in my notes, I literally have, this is very, very, very important. Okay, This is super important for us to understand this. You ready? To say that a historical event can be allegorized is different than saying a passage or historical event is an allegory in itself. This is what's happening here today. The citation that Paul's going to give us, primarily from the book of Genesis, but also Exodus, and frankly, from the whole of Scripture, this is not him saying that we should be looking at these historical events as an allegory. What he's saying is, let's look at these real historical events, and I'm going to create an allegory out of these historical events that's going to help you understand this. It's very different than looking at these historical events and saying they are an allegory. Let me just give you a, a hypothetical backwards illustration of that. If we are going to take and look and say that based on this passage, that the entire historical narrative related to Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac and all of these things, that that's, those aren't even historical events. That's just a word picture. That's just an allegory. Boy, that just turns my entire view of all of Scripture upside down. You getting what I'm saying? This is not what Paul is doing. Paul is not telling us that these are not historical events. What he's assuming is the understanding that we know these are real events. But he's going to take these historical events and he's going to create an allegory. Are you ready? To show us what it means to be saved, salvation by grace, alone, through faith, alone, in Christ alone. So he's going, to start, he's going to teach us these things through this word picture from a familiar Old Testament historical event. Now, uh, we, we talk about this. Now we need to develop the allegory itself. By the way, you're not going to get your normal outline this morning. We're going to be hopscotching back and forth between these verses this morning. We're going to develop this allegory. The first thing that we're going to recognize, that throughout this allegory, he gives us several pairs or groups of twos. The first one that you're going to see, and, and again, we're not going to work through these methodically, but you need to note these. You need to identify these as we're going to work through this allegory. There's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The next group of twos that we're going to see, we're going to see two women, Sarah and Hagar. We're going to see two mountains, Sinai and and Jerusalem. Be ready. I'm going to give you a teaser to the fact that there's a curveball coming. There's actually a third mountain that's going to show up in this text, and hopefully you'll see it before I get there, but you have to notice that. There's actually three mountains, though he talks about two. And then the next thing we also recognize in these groups of twos are there two covenants. There's the covenants of law and flesh and grace or spiritual. Okay? All of these are pairs, they are comparisons and contrasts that Paul is building in an allegorical fashion to help us understand the great realities of what it means, you ready? To be adopted sons of God through the son, through his own son, Jesus Christ. Just a a quick stake in the ground to help you remember where we were in the last couple weeks. Remember how much we talked about family language? Here's more family language, but he does it in an allegorical fashion. All right, so Paul starts to build this allegory. Paul builds this allegory from an Old Testament scripture. Uh, What's noteworthy to me is that as I was constructing the message for this week and spending lots of time this week, part of what I struggle with, or I I labor in would be a better way to say it, is as I'm trying to build my notes and I'm putting my my notes and my, my, my teaching together, I try and empathize with who my audience is. I try and think about who you are. Not that I'm preaching to particular people, but what do these people know? What do they need to understand? How does this need to be applied to our lives? And I was trying to process through what kind of a foundation do I need to build from the book of Genesis related to this allegory to help you understand the allegory. Let me say that one more way. Can I just assume that you know these narratives? Can I just assume you know what's going on there? which caused me to think on a t- totally different level. It caused me to go, no, wait a minute. I'm asking that question about you guys, but how in the world is Paul teaching this in Galatians chapter 4? Think about who the audience is. The, 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 excuse, let me say that again. The Gentiles in Galatia. Now, when I'm looking at this, he doesn't qualify what he's teaching at all. He doesn't back up and say, hey, let's take a chapter and talk about who Isaac is. Let's talk about who Hagar is. Let's talk about her son, Ishmael. Let's talk about how Sarah and Abraham screwed up, how they messed up, how they didn't stand on that promise. Think about those kinds of things. Paul didn't do any of that. So how in the world does he believe or does he know that these Gentiles in Galatia have a clue what he's even talking about? Let's say that one other way. If this was a letter written to the church of Jerusalem, I'd be like, well, this makes sense. These are Jewish believers. They were raised in this. They understand this. But that's not who he's talking to. How can he do this? How in the world is this happening? It's because this is presumption that I'm reading into. This is what I'm surmising from the text, but I think it's realistic. It's because he knows they already know these truths. He knows that they know. How does he know that they know? Because he taught them these scriptures. This is the first. Galatians is the first New Testament epistle that was written. Most of the New Testament, the majority of it, doesn't even exist. As we are watching New Testament, the book of Acts, is we are watching these missionaries go out to the field to all the nations, bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They aren't going out with their pocket New Testaments to do this work. They're going to them with the Scriptures, that part of it. They're going to them with the Old Testaments, and they are teaching them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all, here's an important word in our text this morning, that God is. Has promised us. So that's an important thing for us to recognize and see. And it totally fits with the biblical theology that we've been working through as a church and also fits with exactly Jesus' method of exposing the truth in regards to these things when he says this in Luke, when this is recorded in Luke 24, verse 27. Jesus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the scriptures. That's not the New Testament, that's the Old Testament. And all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, that he is the fulfillment of these things. So again, how in the world do these Gentiles know these things? Because when Paul and Barnabas showed up in Galatia and were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, where did they start? Let's open the scriptures. Let's talk about the very beginnings. In the beginning, God. Who is God? And working through this methodology of God's process and faithfulness and his promises and how that even flows through Abraham and Sarah and his promises to provide a Savior. Which brings us to the foundation. I'm literally going to try and do this based on my timeline in two minutes. So if these are unfamiliar processes, when we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael and Hagar, when we're talking about these people, and you're going, I don't have a clue who he's talking about. I'm going to try and survey these in about two minutes but you may need to dig deeper. You may need to talk to some of the people that surround you. You might need to talk to some of us and say, what in the world is happening here? But this foundation has to be laid. It's in Genesis, particularly chapters 12 through 21, that God gives his promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, to bless him with a son. That he would be the father of a nation. And the descendants of that nation would be more numerous than the stars of the heaven, than the sand of the sea. These are the kind of promises God is giving to Abraham, a man with no children. Abraham and Sarah's actions, they failed. In one sense, they trusted God. God, we believe that you're going to make Abraham the father of this great nation, but clearly we're getting older is the way they viewed this. Our bodies are physically, you ready? Another important word, in the flesh. They're not able to produce this child. So we need to help you in your promises. Think about that. You may have made this promise. We believe your promise, but clearly we need to do something more. We need to add to grace. It's an important thing to think about. And so what happens, and we shake our heads at this, but Sarah and Abraham together, decide that Abraham should impregnate the slave woman, Hagar, Sarah's slave woman, to conceive a son who we know as is Ishmael. God rejected this work of their flesh. That's important. He was faithful to his promise, but he rejected what they added to his promise. They didn't make it better. Honestly, they messed it up. Yet God's faithful to do a miracle by causing Abraham and Sarah to conceive in their old age in spite of their unfaithfulness, as he promised that he would. There's other portions of scripture that I think we can just allude to and recognize they're important to recognize in what's going on here, particularly Exodus chapter 19 and so much that follows after that related to the law and the ceremonial law. We could even take that into Leviticus and even into Numbers and Cases where God gave his law to the people through Moses, where? At Mount Sinai. Another important illustration from this text. The law and its customs, its ceremonies, its rituals, its Sabbath days were all established and given to them at this mountain, at Mount Sinai. And this law, we know from our study through the book of Galatians, proved to them that it was impossible For any man, any woman, any child, any one of us to make ourselves righteous before God by following this law. What does this law do? It shows me I can't do this. I'm incapable of meeting God's perfect holy standard. That's the foundation. It took me more than two minutes. I apologize. Here's your images of two. Images of two. The first image that we're going to see is we're going to see the first son, Ishmael, and his mother, a slave, Hagar. Notably, this slave woman is Sarah's slave. This is biblical language. There's so much we could talk about with slavery and what's going on here customarily. I'm not going to go there. This is the language that's being used in Scripture. We're using this this, uh, allegory as Paul intends it to be as he's under the inspiration of Scripture. The first son is Ishmael. We see in verse 22, look at verse 22 of Galatians chapter 4. I have to turn back in my Bible. By a slave woman, it says in verse 22. Skipping over to verse 23. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The work of the flesh. So what's Paul's point here? God made a promise. That was in Genesis chapter 12. That's the promise Paul's alluding to in verse 23. That he would bless Abraham, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 that his very own wife, not another woman, not the slave woman of your wife, but your very own wife, Sarah, She's the one who would conceive. She is the one who will bear you a son. And this son is the promise. He is the first step in this promise of a nation that would come after, and through this nation would come the Savior, the Deliverer, the one who would set us free from our sins. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. He would come through this lineage. However, Genesis chapter 16. We see era, era, Abraham and Sarah make a plan. And again, using the Galatians 4 verbiage, this was a plan of their own flesh. This wasn't a plan according to God's promise. This was a plan according to what they could do. This is that allegory. They decided to add something to God's grace. They believed God would be faithful. They believed God when he said that he would bring them to this place and he would give these people. They believed that. But clearly God's not producing, so we must do something. There's something that we must do. Maybe we need to help God out a little bit. Maybe God's not going to do all of this. Did he really mean that this child would be conceived and born in me, an old woman? Essentially, that's Sarah's view of this. And this is an important thing to think about from the culture that they were living in. Based on the pagan culture they lived in, it was customary. Not just customary, even normal we would say. For a wife to give her servant to her husband as a wife. To increase his descendants to increase those who would be his children that would receive his, 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 uh, his household and the things that were a part of that. By the pagan culture they lived in, this would be considered a child of his own wife, even though she was born, this child would be born through the slave woman, not through the wife herself. But you guys, this wasn't God's plan. This was an act of the flesh. And yet we can look customarily, historically, culturally, how Sarah and Abraham came to this conclusion. This is what everybody else around us is doing. We must need to do the same kind of a thing. But God's plan for marriage has always been, always been one man, one woman. This is his plan in spite of sinful men. So if Sarah and Abraham schemed, they decided they acted, and their actions proved they did not fully trust God to provide a Savior, that he would do it his way. They felt they needed to do it their way. They took it upon themselves to add to grace with their own works of the flesh. Here's your allegory, guys. By the way, can I just, let me just pause for a second. I'm giving you the cliff notes of this allegory, If you want to spend the afternoon and dig in deeper, there are many, many roots below the surface in this. Here's the Cliff Notes version of it. The allegory of the first son. Because he was born of the flesh, Abraham's works, this son was not God's promise. This son, Ishmael, was a result of the flesh. God did not receive this son. Because the son was born of a slave woman, he remained a slave, a slave in sin, a slave under the law. Because the son was born of the flesh and not God's way, this son, Ishmael, was rejected by God himself. In verse 30, it talks about the fact that this son is cast out, rejected by God himself. So here's the point of this portion of the allegory. When we add to God's promise of grace for salvation, God is not pleased with us. That's simple. When we add to God's promise of grace for salvation, God is not pleased with us. When we add our own good works to his promise, he rejects our works. What is conceived in us by works of the law, this is Galatians, brings us back to slavery. That's the allegory of the first child. There's another child. This is the second son, Isaac, and his mother, a free woman, Sarah. Let me read verses 22 down through just 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. God did a miracle as he had promised he would do, standing on the promises of God. What God says he will do is done. It is as good as accomplished. God waited in the case of the birth of Isaac, the conception of Isaac in Sarah's womb. God waited till it was absolutely impossible by the flesh for this to take place. They could not do this themselves. They were hopeless. They were helpless. According to Genesis chapter 21, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. That would make Sarah 90. They could not save themselves. They could not work. They could not desire enough. They could not do anything of their own, to bring this conception about. Now, this is important in qualification. This doesn't mean that this is the kind of conception that took place within Mary as God the Holy Spirit did this work. That's not what we're saying. There was a physical action that took place between Abraham and Sarah, but God miraculously worked in that and brought a child. This was not something that their own bodies could produce. There's no other way to say that. So, the conception of Isaac was through the physical act between Abraham and Sarah. Verse 23, Sarah is the free woman, but only by a miracle. That's what we need to think about when we see that word promise. God's direct action related to his promise. Only through a miracle did God accomplish this. Here's our point, coming down to the second, ch- the second son. The gift of life was a promise, and God did all of it. The gift of salvation is a promise salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone you guys if you're standing on that promise god did all of it he did all of it there is no action that either abraham or sarah could take to cause this to take place they could do nothing that said give us the credit The conception and the birth was only of grace, which brings us to such a familiar passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as a result, the son, Isaac, he is accepted by God. This son is free. He is not a slave, for he is, the, he is the son of the free woman. This son is all of grace from God, not a result of the work of the flesh. So here are some more of the points. When we seek to add to God's promise of salvation, we remain a slave. However, when we trust when we place our faith, when we are dependent upon him and his promise, his grace, we're free. Look all the way down to the very end of this section. Look at verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That's the point. In grace. Don't add to this. If that's where you stand, you are not a child of the slave. You are a child of the free woman. You've been set free from the law. Now, two mountains, but maybe there's three. Okay? Uh, This totally messed with me. I'm going to be really honest with you. This section that we're going to look at right now is the part I muddled over the most until I recognized there's three mountains here. And all of a sudden I went, oh, I get it. Let me illustrate this a slightly different way. I don't know if you've all seen it. I'm not endorsing it but maybe you've seen the movie Inception. You know the movie I'm talking about? A dream within a dream. You ready? This is an allegory within an allegory. You ready? Put your seatbelts on. It's going to get crazy for a minute. This is an allegory within an allegory. Now, to take the allegory the two women... Paul now takes that allegory and builds another allegory related to them. He compares that section of the allegory, we would say. And he does this through two mountains, but actually there's three. Mount Sinai is the place where the law was given. We would say that's the mountain of slavery. Okay. Mount Jerusalem, the high place, they always go up to Jerusalem to worship, right? We'd say this is the mountain of God. But here's your curveball, your third mountain. Look at verse 26. There's also a Jerusalem above. And for those of you that are tuning in and starting to get this, this is the new Jerusalem. This is the Zion we're looking for. There's a Jerusalem that's to come. Now, let me read verses 25 through 27 to help you kind of get this together. Now, Hagar, here's your allegory within an allegory. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. It's pretty cool. Now, the first mountain is Sinai. We're going to do this really quickly. He relates this mountain to Hagar, allegory within an allegory, the slave woman. Sinai, Exodus 19, is the place where the law was given. Anyone that believes that their good works of the law will earn them an entrance into the kingdom is grossly mistaken. The works of the law that were given at Sinai don't give us freedom. They put us in bondage. This is the mountain of slavery, according to the text. It's a place of bondage. We're going to see in just a minute how that mountain is actually a place of great fear. Do you remember what it looked like as Israel gathered around the base of the mountain of Sinai? The way that God showed up in this terrible, dark, powerful lightning strikes. How they were told, don't you even go near that mountain. Put up a boundary. If your animals even cross that line, they will be struck dead. Here's a place of fear. There's another mountain that's here. The other mountain we see is present Jerusalem. That word present is important. He's qualifying from a contemporary language. The Jerusalem right now. The Jerusalem, here we are in Galatia, or I'm writing to you in Galatia, we could say, that's just over there, a few hundred miles away in, in Jerusalem. That present day, Jerusalem. At the time that this was written... The temple and the sacrifices were still happening at that temple. The the Jewish people didn't stop doing that at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They kept doing it. They kept pressing forward in this. And this practice was not fully abolished until 70 AD when Jerusalem was laid flat by Rome. This letter was written something around 35 Okay, So this is several years before that abolishment. They're continuing to move forward and to do this. So for those who presently, present Jerusalem, approach God by works of the law and sacrifice, they're still in slavery. They're still in slavery. They're still in that dark place. They're still bound to Hagar, the slave woman, comparing her in that way. She is in slavery with her children, according to verse 25. But what Paul does here is phenomenal. Here's that third mountain. The third mountain. This is the already but not yet reality of being a child of God. The already but not yet reality. The Jerusalem above. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 speaks of this. Our citizenship is in heaven. That Jerusalem. In heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews does a really cool job of doing this comparison between Jerusalem and Sinai. Jerusalem and Sinai. And it does this in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, talking about Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched. This is Sinai. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. The Jerusalem above, on the other hand, is something completely different, which we see in the same chapter, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. This is what we have as ones who have been set free, not by the law, but by the work of Jesus Christ. To approach the heavenly Jerusalem by the, works of our, by the works of the law, by the good things that we do, we're just slaves. We're in bondage. It's actually terrible. It's a fearful thing to do this. On the other hand, we are free And we know, according to Galatians 4, which we're going to read in just a second, that we can confidently go to our own Father, Daddy, Abba, because of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. We aren't slave children. We are free children, adopted by God himself. Galatians chapter 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the intimacy that we have with him. But notice this, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God in Christ we are sons and daughters in Christ we are free in Christ we are to rejoice we are to give him the glory God's faithfulness God is faithful to his promises which he has fulfilled citizens of the Jerusalem above we are free from the law You can't do anything to add to what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. You are a child of the free woman. You are adopted through the Son to the Father, and with the indwelling of the Spirit, you have the very nature of God within you. Free from the bondage of the flesh. It says in verse 27, a citation. We read this a minute ago from Isaiah, and I'll just give the citation, verse 27. For it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And this is interesting. This is actually a citation of Sarah at all. This is a completely different historical event. But he points to it and says, we are to rejoice in where we are in Christ. And he points that, I think, back to Sarah. Now, this is going to buckle together in a good way really quickly. Here's the application of the principle. Look at verse 28. Galatians 4, verse 28. And you're right, this is no normal outline that we normally have. It says in verse 28 Now you, brothers, like Isaac. Notice how personal this is. You, brothers, you, you, are children of the promise. Contrasting that. Not children of the flesh. Not children of the slave woman. You are children of the promise. You are free. For those who are under Christ, or excuse me, under grace and not the law, we are children of the promise. And just as there was a great tension between Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac, there was incredible tension. This text alludes to it, but we recognize that this even comes down to the fact that Abraham casts her out. The text speaks about that because there was this tension, there was this this, uh, persecution that takes place, according to this text, between these two broken family groups that we see taking place in this same household. So was true in Galatia, between those who were standing on grace and the Judaizers who were bringing back into that the law. They were wandering to introduce the law to those who have grace. You can't just have this freely. You've got to do something to earn this. See the tension? See the persecution that's going on there? Verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's, that's um, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit that's Isaac so also it is now you guys are experiencing that right now he would say to the Galatians that's what you're experiencing those Judaizers who are still slaves they're persecuting you because you're in grace they want you to have to do what they think they have to do this is this is Paul's instruction to the brethren. To the believers, to the church, to the Christians of Galatia. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He said, cast it out. Don't walk in this. And and I want to tell you, I'm not going to conclusively tell you what this is. The question is, is he saying, you as Galatia, you need to deal with these false teachers. Cast them out of your midst. Deal with these false teachers. Is this an example of false teaching? Maybe. I'm actually more inclined for him that he's saying to the Galatians themselves, you have grace, cast out Sinai. Get rid of the law. Don't walk under the law. That law is not what makes you free. You think it is, cast that out. This is for you. You personally have a responsibility. Maybe another way to say that is, Take the plank out of your eye because you're looking at the splinter and you're saying they're the ones who are making a stumble. You're the ones who are walking in the flesh. You need to turn to the truth. Galatians chapter 1, we know this well. We've cited it so many times. But this is what I think he's saying. Cast this out. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Cast that out. Not that there is another one Cast that out. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You need to cast that out. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be a cursed anathema. As we have said before, so we say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed cast that false gospel out last verse of the text verse 31 so brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman we are not children of the slave but we are free we are set free from the works of the law and just as galatians 4 says again When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, daughters, children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's your application questions this morning. Where do your, excuse me, where does your faith reside this morning? You trusting in yourself? If you are, you're a slave. Are you trusting in what Christ has fully completed, what he has accomplished on your behalf? You are free. You are a child. And we look to the Jerusalem above. Are you free? Are you truly free in Christ? So brothers, we are not children of the slave. We are children of the free woman.